Oh, McDevitt here, sharing the load with Kieran Murphy and Ken Early. Hi, guys. Good morning, Owen. How are you? Well, I'm pretty good. We're the second captains, and we're going to be with you until 11 o'clock this morning. If you'd like to get in touch, it's the usual text number 51551. You can tweet us at Second Captains or at Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, the nice thing about these long weekends is they give you a bit of time to go and try something new, maybe see something you've never seen before. But not too much of that sort of behaviour now, Owen, I hope. Well, it was with this spirit of adventure that I went to a gig in Dublin on Saturday night by an American musician going by Pretty the name adventurous, of, uh, Very adventurous, yes. American, very fancy. Andy the Doorbum was this gentleman's name. Okay, uh, good. Andy describes his genre of music as art, ghost worship, folk, noir, experimental. Oh, now, so right in your wheelhouse. I don't even understand what any of those words mean by themselves, let alone mm. when they're all put together like that. But all I know is attending that gig was a pretty big deal for me, Ken, because it cemented my first ever holiday friendship. That could have been an ah there. Holiday friendship. Did you meet this musician on holiday? No, not this musician. See, I've always been envious of people who come back from holidays and you know these people. They come back and say, oh, it was amazing. Met this lovely couple from Norway. We went out for dinner every night. Great couple, yeah. Mm. We're we're still in touch. Their kids are lovely. Is this like a Facebook we're still in touch or, you know, an actual... I know people who have actually made holiday friends and seen them in real life post-holidays. Myself and my wife, however, have never quite been able to pull this off. I don't Mm. know what it is. Maybe we're trying too hard. But You're very standoffish, Sean. Maybe that's well, it. Well, that could be it as well. Until we went on safari for our honeymoon in January and managed to strike up a bit of a bond with a lovely couple of musicians from Charlotte, North Carolina. Book and Jude were their names, Carol. Sorry, Book and... Book and Jude. Book and Jude. Book and Jude. You're from sure you Carolina. haven't just made these up now? Because if I was making up a couple from... Uh, North Carolina, I'd probably call them <laughs> Buck and Jude. Uh, I, and I say Bond, you know, we had a couple of drinks outside our tent for about half an hour, but that's good enough for me. So I'm going to count, count that. So okay. anyway, we got a Facebook message from our new pal Buck during the week saying, my buddy Andy the Doorbum is in Dublin playing a gig at the Cobblestone. You guys have to go check him out. We thought, well, we're not really into art, ghost worship, folk noir, exper- experimental music as such. Mm. But any friend of our holiday friends is a friend of ours. So off we went and I feel we've we've really nailed down our holiday friendship now with Buck and Jude until they end up hearing this recording no, on a live no, no, national radio station. I wouldn't be too worried about in that. In which case they're running a mile. Yeah. I, Are you I'm a holiday just, friend kind of guy? Well, I'm not at all, Owen. No, you I don't even make I, the effort. Well, I don't know. Like, is, is it a case of making the effort or is it just a case of, you know, falling into conversation with someone and letting it... I mean, I think if you're getting on a, a flight on your holiday and saying, right, well, my... The main purpose of my holiday this week yeah. is I I get two extra Facebook friends. I don't I don't think I don't know anyone who actually thinks like that. On I don't really know, but I mean I, I will say this: you were guilt shamed into going to a gig you didn't want to go to by two friends of yours that you've only met for <laughs> half an hour. I mean, I think you might just be too polite, old. I so mean, I think is this what, is the major this is problem. Happens. I mean, I wonder if you look at all of the holiday friends. Hmm? all of the pairings of holiday friends around the world, whether at least 50% of, or, or at least half of each holiday friendship is American. Because Americans have that kind of um, social habit of speaking to strangers civilly, which Europeans don't really have. No? Irish but, people? We're a friendly mm, bunch, no? I'm not, I'm well, not I think so when sure. appro- uh, you know, when approached, we're friendly. Yeah, but that's the, that's the problem. So when approached, so you're approached by an American and suddenly a few weeks later you're going to gigs because they, <laughs> <laughs> they suggested... Because these loud the Americans bullied you into doing it. Yeah. I enjoyed the gig, by the way. I have to place it on the record just in case Andy the Doorbell happens to be listening to the Ryan Tuberty show. I don't know if he's a fan, Ken. I do not know. Any stories floating your boat this morning? Um, floating my boat. I mean, all the boats are floating on, according to the <laughs> stories. I've been looking through the papers. A lot of them are following up on the Sunday Independence poll yesterday, which um, 
says that a, a mood of euphoria has gripped the nation. Rampant optimism. Um, the Sunday Events poll had uh, said that uh, the mood of the nation is now the highest it's been in 28 years. 77% of people say they are upbeat about life in Ireland. And as much as 52%, a 28-year high, believe the country is going in the right direction. Mm. Uh, so slightly more than half, the most ever, mm. uh, believe that things are going well. Yeah. What can be behind this tidal wave of optimism? Yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, it, it is kind of one of those situations where I mean, and a question like, are you optimistic about, I mean, how much of that is to do with the future or the country, rather? And how much of that is just to do with the person you're asking? I mean, I, I mean, well, I, I assume, <laughs> I assume they ask more than one person. I mean, you know, they, they <laughs> they're pretty good at these yeah, statistical no, I, methods here. You I know. appreciate that. I, I, I respect that. A lot. But I mean, Ken, we do have to, you know, dark clouds are gathering because I read in the Chicago Tribune over the weekend that there's a worldwide avocado shortage which is bound to depress those numbers uh, yeah. quite a bit. And of course, the Prosecco shortage, that shows no sign of, uh, of uh, sorting itself uh, out either. So, oh, I mean, there's a Prosecco shortage. Yeah, yeah. There has been one for the last year. Uh, basically, uh, Western Europeans are drinking so much Prosecco now that it's damaging the wildlife in northern Italy. So, right. yeah, there's, there, there's a storm coming, people. Uh, elsewhere, the Daily Mirror reports today that a priest has blasted his flock over poultry collections. A priest told his parishioners to show him the money after a very disappointing collection for his upkeep, uh, reports the Daily Mirror on page 11 today. <laughs> Father Fergal Ryan took his flock to task after checking parish records and wrote letters telling them, I've noticed that your contribution to the support of the income of your parish, uh, parish priest, is zero. Parishioners in Beaufort County Kerry are asked to pay €5 euro a week to run their church and €20 euro six times a year towards the priest's living expenses. But Father Ryan was unimpressed when collection envelopes were returned. He wrote to locals, This is very disappointing. I hope you can do better and support your parish priest. But he was speaking yesterday. Uh, this matters between me and my parishioners. It's a this, private this, matter. This is when the, the mayor evidently rang him up to... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do with the general public. I'm not commenting any further on the issue. However, when asked what reaction he'd received to the letters, he said, very positive. Now, I'm glad that he's uh, reporting a very positive response to this, because in my experience, this particular method is not always that successful. Basically, you know, shaming people into giving you money. I'm not entirely sure about that. But uh, I did see something else on this United Airlines giant bunny story. Oh, we are doing the giant bunny story. Thank you. It, well, it just refuses to go away on. This is the story of Simon, the giant three-foot English rabbit, who's being flown to a new life and new opportunities in uh, Chicago when he died in mysterious circumstances last week. Uh, the owner of the giant rabbit uh, says the scandal-scared airline cremated her bunny's remains so that she would never know the truth about how it died. The whole thing stinks of a cover-up, breeder Annette Edwards 65, told the son. Uh, United claimed the rabbit was alive when it was taken out of the cargo section of a Boeing 767. Uh, the airline CEO, Oscar Munoz, tried to apologise after the rabbit's death, but drew fire for likening the pet to misplaced bags. We are deeply sorry for the loss of anything, from your luggage to, of course, a loved pet. Which is not probably the analogy that, you know, the animal lovers out there would appreciate. I've got even more of a tug of the heartstrings kind of story, if you guys want to hear it this bank holiday Monday morning. Go on. Luxury festival with $12,000 ticket p- tickets postponed after reports of chaos, theft, ham sandwiches. 
<laughs> I know nothing illicit sympathy quite like the plight of incredibly wealthy beautiful young festival goers so this is the Fire Festival you might have heard about this over the weekend it's created by rapper Ja Rule backed by the likes of Kendall Jenner the marketing campaign involved a lot of Instagram models basically enticing people to this lavish extravaganza on a private island in the Bahamas so tickets were anywhere up to $12,000 but when people got there festival goers reported conditions that more closely evoked Lord of the Flies than Coachella according to the report I, I read mm. Eyewitnesses told Billboard the festival grounds appeared half-finished when guests arrived, with shelters comparable to disaster relief tents. What's more, festival attendees have shared photos of gourmet cuisine, in inverted commas, supposedly included in the ticket price, that amounted to ham and cheese sandwiches served with salad. So basically, this was a normal festival, and this is the <laughs> yeah. first time these very well, wealthy no- people experienced something like this. Mm. A normal festival that cost 12000 Dollars, I suppose. My favourite part is the apology by Ja Rule, creator and organiser of this event. I truly apologise as this is not my fault in bold, in capitalised letters, <laughs> but I'm taking responsibility. So not his fault, taking responsibility. I'm deeply sorry to everyone who was inconvenienced by this. I, I, I also saw there was a message from Bella Hadid, who was one of the models who was promoting it. And um, so she posted saying, oh, she is a similar kind of thing. I just wanted to address Fire Festival, even though this was not my project whatsoever, nor was I informed about the production or process of the festival in any shape or form. I do know it's a, basically they meant well, but if she'd known how badly it was going to turn out, she she never would have done it. But they've, I mean, it's sort of interesting the way that she could completely sidestep any responsibility. I mean, Kendall Jenner was, was also promoting and mm. she can't seem to catch a break promotion wise after doing the Pepsi ads uh, about a month ago or, or the, that kind of caused a lot of problems when mm. it came out people solve world is, peace with a can of Pepsi one of the most crass and insensitive things we've ever seen and uh, Pepsi I remember apologized to Kendall Jenner for getting her mixed up in all that mm. like after giving her like a million dollars to be in the ad they then apologized to her for the trouble that she had so so evidently it's of no no point is any responsibility expected to be taken now by people who endorse products if if things go wrong. We've a really incredible lady on the way. After 10 o'clock this morning, Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially complete the world-famous Boston Marathon. That was back in 1967, despite the best efforts of the race director who stormed onto the course in the middle of the run and tried to physically rip her bib number off. Now, Catherine took that experience. She dedicated herself to empowering women around the world through running. And just this month, 50 years on, she completed the Boston Marathon once again. That's all in the second hour of the show. Speaking of anniversaries, this May Bank Holiday marks 20 years since one of my own personal favourite moments in Irish sport. And Doherty thoroughly deserves this embassy world championship Sheffield in the Crucible third to belongs to Ken Doherty who beats Stephen Hendry 1812 to become the Raise the roof to you in goffs back home there when you win at everything else. This is something different for you now, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's absolutely superb here. And I think, uh, you know, on, be- on behalf of, like, uh, myself and the family, you know, and, and, and all that we're watching back in Ireland, you know, it's a, it's a great boost for them. You know, it's, it's nice to uh, have another world champion from Ireland. Yeah, the great Ken Doherty there in 1997 after beating the previously unbeatable Stephen Hendry to become world snooker champion. He came home, he enjoyed a glorious open-top bus tour into his hometown of Ranelagh. We're going to relive a bit of that magic with Ken 
in just a few minutes' time. Please do text in your own memories if you have them to 51551. And you can tweet at Second Captains or at Ryan Tubbery Show. I said it was one of my own personal favourite moments. Murph, I'm sure I'm not the only one. It was a pretty amazing deal at the time. Yeah, it's kind of hard to overstate actually just how big it was. Uh, for the first time ever, Orty had commandeered BBC's live feed, live television feed, uh, so that everyone here could watch the, the last session on the Monday evening. Uh, as you say, the open top bus parade down O'Connell Street, just like Italia 90, hmm. uh, all the way to Ranala. Uh, and of course, Ranala had been like covered in street parties for the entire evening, the 91. Uh, he was apparently even responsible for a one-night-only dip in crime uh, in his hometown of Dublin. Uh, speaking after he came back, Ken said, I met the chief superintendent from Harcourt Street. He said, Doherty, did you know from 7 to 10pm during the final session of the snooker, there wasn't one call into Central Police Station in Dublin. People were going mad. They thought there was something wrong with the phones. But everybody was watching the snooker. A quote which I, I particularly love for the detail of him, of Ken just being called Doherty for some reason. I mean, the man's a world champion. Well, have some respect. 97 happened to be a pretty awful year for music, unfortunately. But here's a track that rose above the dross.
Paul McDevitt here from Second Cabins with Murph and Ken hosting the Ryan Tuberty Show this morning. That was Beetleboom by Blur, one of the better songs in 1997. The year Ken Doherty became world champion. Text in here from Orland Cork. And 51551, fair dues to Owen for going to that concert, recommended by his holiday buddy. He and his wife met on safari. Why knock it? At least he has a bit of adventure in him to try something different. Well, thank you, Orland. I should mention that the venue where the gig was on is about a four minute walk from my house. So it would have been almost more rude not to, not to walk to it and stay for at least half but an Buck hour. But Buck didn't know that. Buck did not know that. Do you know that we in Ireland are only celebrating the May Bank holiday since 1994? Says an anonymous listener. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. No. So Ken's victory wasn't the only important event of that year. Murph 1997 no. was quite a year of culture indeed. It was only was. Titanic was such a big movie in 1997 that even your parents went to see it, which would have been the first time that they'd have gone to the cinema since, you know, Michael Collins, I'm sure. Uh, Aqua's Barbie Girl was poisoning the minds of our youth. Microsoft 97, of course, was released. Uh, the first, and in my opinion, still the best, uh, Microsoft Office. And in fact, Ireland was so backward that we hadn't even elected a Healy Ray of any stripe uh, to the doll. Something, of course, which we duly rectified in June of that year, but nevertheless on. I can't wait to talk to the man himself, Ken Doherty. He's coming up next. If you're a little late to the Ryan Tuberty show this morning, I should probably explain that I am not, in fact, Ryan Tuberty, and neither are these two men beside me, Ken and Murph. We're all from Second Captains. In for Ryan today. You can tweet us at Second Captains or at Ryan Tuberty Show. I'm sure Ryan Tuberty doesn't have any uh, difficulty making holiday friends on. No. No. So he's okay. See, well, he's... people will flock to Ryan. Yeah, that is true. To become his holiday friends. So then he can be a bit standoffish if he needs to. Yeah. He doesn't have to try as hard it's as It's just that I first move that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that seems true. to have hobbled us so R- far. Remember the huge crowd in Russell's of Ranelagh to get a look at Ken and the trophy? There were so many people there, we could only see the top of his head and the trophy. Free pint seekers still waiting to see there who remembers 97. Well, it was on this May Bank Holiday Monday 20 years ago that Ken Doherty was busy carving out, I'm going to say, one of the most popular victories in Irish sporting history by winning the World Snooker Championship 20 years on. He's back at the scene of his triumph, the Crucible Theatre, working for the BBC at this year's final. And I'm delighted to say he joins us from their studios in Sheffield. Ken, brilliant to have you on. How are things? Uh, very good morning to you lads how are you yeah we're great we're getting a little bit nostalgic ourselves over here <laughs> have you found yourself getting nostalgic in Sheffield uh, I tell you that was the first time uh, I heard that little interview since all those years ago 20 years ago when you played that little bit with David Vine you know at the end so it, it sort of brings it all back yeah you do get you know like the memories sort of come back can't believe it's 20 years but you do get very nostalgic anytime you, you come to Sheffield you'll always remember your first time out out there and you'll always remember you know the time that you've won it I mean that was a that was a boyhood dream come true of course you know How well do you remember what was going through your mind in the, in the closing mm. stages in particular when did you allow yourself to believe that you were going to beat <laughs> Stephen Henry? I did, I, you know, something I I didn't believe it until I was potting those last few balls and uh, I saw Tony Drago. He was in the, the press box and uh, Tony Drago is a good friend of mine. I've known him for many years and he managed to, to um, get into the press box. I don't know how, you know, but he managed to, to nick a seat in there and he was at the bottom, which is at right at the bottom of the table. And as I was potting the brown and coming around to the blue, I saw him sort of, clapping like a seal in the press box and it sort of and it sort of just brought a big smile to my face and then I realized that I only needed the blue and and the pink was a formality and then I was world champion because against Stephen Hendry you're never too sure because he he's just such a he was such a great player I mean he had he hadn't lost there for 5 years he was gone for 6 in a row 
So uh, before the before the final, nobody would have given me a, a hope. Only you know my friends and my family and and people who had supported me and and uh, you know putting those last few balls. It was uh, that's when I only just realised, to be honest. You know, I can imagine uh, the, the sort of emotions you were going through. And you mentioned your friends mm. who were there. Finn Ruan is a guy who uh, is a good friend of yours. I read a piece yeah. he wrote this week, and he was talking about. Uh, well, I'll give you a bit of quote from it. Here was a guy I had known since we were 13 years of age mm. who I socialised with every weekend and had shared a home with in London becoming world snooker champion and with it reaching the pinnacle of his career. All the failings and dreams of my own time as a player felt like they were exercised for me when he hoisted the mm. famous trophy that night in the arena. Like, that's an incredible yeah. effect to have on other people. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, Finn and I sort of grew up playing, you know, as kids and we shared a lot of like dreams as like you know 12 and 13 year olds and and then of course we went to london together to try and you know become professional when we left school at 17 and uh, you know we were on a, a great journey together as, as a lot of my friends were at the time you know and uh, actually finn is coming over to the world championships uh, today he's on the way over you know, for the 20th anniversary and of course, you know, just to come to the, the World Championship final and uh, yeah, shared many dreams and, and he was uh, a very, very good and very close friend and still is And after all those years. It's nice to it's nice to hear those little stories. It sort of brings a little tear to your eye when you hear that, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, it brought a lot of uh, great happy times, you know, because, you know, my friends and family, we'd be all very, very close, you know, and uh, I'm sure like they were potting every ball with me as I, as I was sort of, uh, and going through all the emotions, the highs and lows. Sometimes it's harder to watch than it is actually to play, you know? Yeah, your, your family did, tended not to go over, I think, after a certain point of your no. career. No, they couldn't go. They couldn't They couldn't watch. Uh, they could watch it at home. I know my own, my mum's house there in Renla was packed full of well-wishers and people from, you know, the papers and from RTE and I'm sure people from Radio 1 were there as well waiting for the, you know, the, the first interview or the reaction and stuff like that. Um, and my mum went off on her bike, off on her travels from that day. She Nobody knew where she was. She was on her bike uh, going into every church in Dublin and lighting candles for me, you know, and uh, yeah, that was... Um, the place was uh, like in turmoil, you know. Uh, yeah, and like Orty took the BBC feed just as we were saying there a couple of minutes yeah, ago for the first yeah. time to show on that Monday night. Mm. Did you have any idea how big uh, this was, no. like at home? No, not really. I tried to, uh, I tried to keep the phone calls down to a minimum. You know, I was like, I was in, a, I was in my own little bubble with uh, with Mick Mick McLean, my good friend, and uh, Pat Caulfield from Dublin, and we sort of tried to keep our own sort of little bubble and not get too carried away with all the excitement that was going on because sometimes that can sort of envelop you and it sort of can you can lose your focus a little bit and I thought if I knew exactly what was going on at home I wouldn't be able to pot a ball like in the final session so I, I knew it was on the precipice of something great uh, and something wonderful and I didn't want uh, any distractions so I tried to keep things down to a minimum and that story that you relayed about the uh, the superintendent and that, that is a very true story he told me that story when I came back to the mansion house and he Doherty. did call me Doherty, yeah. Doherty by the way yeah, yeah. yeah. and the funny guard. thing was yeah yeah typical guard and the funny thing was he says um he said, Doherty, you said you should be on television more often." He says, "You make my job a hell of a lot easier." <laughs> <laughs> well, you got the full Italian ninety treatment as well, didn't you? The open top bus tour. <laughs> I know. I, I couldn't believe that. You know, um, 
the fact that Eamon Dunphy said to me, he says, you know, when you win that, he was over as well, you know, and he says, when you win that World Championship, he says, they'll they'll put a bus on for you, you know, you'll be coming down that O'Connell Street on an open top bus, and I want to be there with you, and I, and I want to get the first interview instead of Jimmy McGee, he says, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but I never believed it was going to happen, I really didn't believe it, uh, and uh, I was I was very, very surprised when it, when it happened, but it was just so wonderful, you know, coming oh, off the airplane, yeah. getting, you know, landing at Dublin Airport all the people waiting for you coming off the steps with the cup and then uh, the open top bus I mean all the cars were beeping like people hanging out the office windows waving flags and people running up beside the bus and lined the streets of O'Connell Street all the way up to the mansion house and then of course Renla Renla was just Renla was just a party village like it was just fantastic you know What about the family home? I presume it was busy <laughs> It was inundated yeah my mother eventually returned after the final you know she got a Apparently she got a puncture in her bike and she had to walk back from Donnybrook Church. That was her last port of call. Uh, and somebody had stopped her and told her uh, on the way home that I'd won and she was absolutely delighted. And when we when we went on the Late Late Show the following week and uh, they everybody, you know, the whole story was relayed that she got a puncture in her bike. Even David Vyan told me on the night in question, even he knew that she got a puncture in her bike as I was picking up the cup. And uh, we went on the Late Late Show the following week and uh, Pat Kenny presented her with a brand new bike, you know, in the audience. She was absolutely mortified and uh, she never cycled it. It was too brand new. It had a shiny new, like like a white uh, saddle and it was absolutely beautiful, but it was too brand new. She she just liked to stick to her old, like, you know, old crock of a bike, you know. Yeah, and you're obviously an absolutely huge Manchester United fan. Uh, yeah. So you were given the chance to parade the trophy at Old Trafford, I believe. I was, yeah, and that was one of the that was one of the great that was one of the great things about being world champion you know it was like there was little sort of little perks that came with it and uh, I got a phone call from Alex John Parrott where it originated was John Parrott told me uh, he was a big Everton fan he said he told me that he paraded the trophy around uh, Anfield because Everton were away that week but Liverpool Council and Liverpool Football Club said look we know you're from Liverpool the blue side but if you would like to parade the trophy uh, when he won it in 91 and so he paraded it around Anfield and I thought Jenny I'd love to do that around Old Trafford that would be fantastic and I got a phone call from Alex Ferguson uh, the day after uh, I won the World Champion we said I know you're a big Man United fan would you like to come and parade the, the trophy around our travel I said what would I like to what <laughs> uh, I nearly dropped the phone and he brought me around Old Trafford um, brought me up into the direct- they were picking up the Premiership trophy that day they were playing West Ham and um he brought me into where the boys were sitting, like the first team and the second team. They were having their lunch that day, you know. And uh, I walked in with himself and Martin Edwards. I have the cup in my hand. And he said, uh, lads, he said, uh, Ken Doherty is a big man, United fan, just won the World Championship and he's going to parade the trophy around uh, Old Trafford. And uh, nobody moved, you know. They're all, everybody just looked around and there was this deafening silence for about a minute. And I felt like a complete lemon with this cup in my hand. I didn't know what to do. And... Uh, I thought like Roy Keane or Dennis Irwin, yeah, some of the Irish lads, Mike it up. Yeah, 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 come on. Like uh, Nobody moved at all. And uh, anyway, this big lad pushed his chair back, walked over to me, uh, shook my hand and says, congratulations, Mr. Doherty. And all I could say, I looked up at him because he was about six foot three and I said to him, thank you, Mr. Cantona. <laughs> That's all <laughs> I could say. Uh, but it was a wonderful moment. And when I went out on the pitch, they were singing my name and all the West Ham 
fan, there was, all the Man United fans were singing there's only one Ken Doherty all the West Ham fans were singing there's only one Ronnie O'Sullivan so I was brought back down there <laughs> very quickly you know <laughs> you, you often hear Ken when sports people or people in any walk of life achieve something big achieve the ultimate aim mm. that they mm. it takes a while to sink in that's the standard cliched answer oh it hasn't sunk in yet was there yeah. a moment in the days that followed that it did sink in that you were world champion Um. I think it took a while. I think it took a long time. Uh, it was quite uh, just a wonderful feeling. You know, you were on such a high for, you know, for the whole season, really following it. You know, and I, I didn't have a particularly good season to following it until I got to the, the final again. But it took a long, long time. But every morning I'd get up or I'd come in uh, in my mother's house and, and, and uh, the cup would be on the television, you know, and she'd have it all beautiful shining like gleaming you know and I'd, I'd come into the, the sitting room and I'd pick it up and give it a big kiss and she used to always do the same you know and it was uh, it was only it, it took a long time for it to sink in but there was people always knocking on the door can we come in and get a picture with the cup and you know it was uh, yeah you were living on, a, on cloud nine for like six or nine months I would say you know Did it change your life? Is there an obvious difference looking at it now um, between the years before 97 compared to what your life has been since then? Um, did it change my life? You know, I think it didn't, it didn't get, didn't really change myself or, you know, the people around me. Uh, it just, I presume sort of people's perspective, perspective of you, it maybe changed, you know, you were, you weren't just a, an ordinary snooker player anymore. You were a world champion. And I suppose you're sort of, your status went up as as a sports person, um, and you became sort of more recognisable and stuff like that. You know, you used to get better seats in restaurants. You know, you never you never had to queued up like going into nightclubs that were you know during the during the nineties. <laughs> and anyway, that was for sure. But that was that was about it. Uh, you know, everybody any way you wanted, people would always like remember where they were in ninety seven. Uh, you know, on that fateful night when you won the World Championship. There's so many lovely stories, like, you know, people saying, oh, I was here, I was watching it here, I was, you know, I was across the other side of the world watching it, and, and it was just uh, it was just lovely, you know. But, you know, when I when I first uh, saw Alex Higgins win in 82, and then, of course, Dennis Taylor win it in 85, that's what I wanted to do, you know, from that early age. And it was uh, just to, to emulate those two great champions and do exactly the same. It was just, uh, it was just fantastic. You, you can't get any better than that, you know, as a, as a professional. That attention that you talk about, though, that new status mm-hmm. that you had, that can be troubling for sports people sometimes, that, that you're, you're suddenly catapulted into this other level of fame yeah. in, in a fairly small country. Everybody would, who has ever met you came <sighs> and talk about how down to earth you are. But did you have to work mm. at staying that way, at staying grounded? No, no, that's just... Um, that would come from the people around me, from my family, from my mother. Uh, they that would come from that. They'd never let me, you know, get too uh, above myself because I'd be firmly brought back down to earth with a big bang if that ever happened. And, and I think that's that's where it comes from from my background. Uh, of course, this wasn't the first time you'd have had to have you know deal with media intrusion, Ken. Here's a clip. Just after you won the World Amateur Championship in 1989, you're speaking to Joe Maxey, and I think maybe you haven't heard this in quite a while, so here goes. You have to spend hours and hours of practice. Do you have any social life at all? Um, yeah, we got time to go out. It's not as if I'm sleeping under the table every morning, you know. <laughs> I do practice a lot, but also we got time to go out and enjoy ourselves as well, just as much as anyone else. So what would you do to relax? Um... Go out, disco dancing, and have a few drinks, play golf, anything really, you know, just anything that 
I'm just like an average guy, you know, I don't do anything spectacular. So if you've uh, witnessed Ken's oh disco dancing in uh, Nighthouse and Radley in please get in touch. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, uh, that, was the, the, that is shocking, yeah. that is shocking, that interview, is it? <laughs> do you remember Where did that? you dig that out of? Where did you dig that out of? Do you remember that? Speaking to Joe Maxi uh, in 1989. I, I remember being on Joe Maxi, yeah. I remember being on Joe Maxi. I can't believe I said I like disco dancing. <laughs> 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 Still going strong, I'm sure. Oh. Good. Listen, the Q, is, is <laughs> no, it true? Those days, those days are well over. <laughs> is it true that the cue that you won the World Championship mm. in 1997 is the same cue that you had since almost when you began playing snooker as a kid? Yeah, it is. It's very true. I, I had that. Uh, I used to go into Jason's, like, you know, after every day, like after school, I'd get the bus home, you know, the skill bag would be thrown under the, under the snooker table and... Um, what I used to do in Jason's like to get free time was like, you know, empty the ashtray, sweep the floor, do a bit of hoovering or whatever. Uh, and I'd be, I'd get a few games on the Space Invader machine or the Pac-Man or the pinball machine. Uh, and obviously then a few games on, on the snooker table. And of course I knew every uh, snooker queue in the, um, in the club, you know, and they'd always got back up on the, on the, on the, on the queue rack. And somebody had left this queue behind. It wasn't like a house queue. It was obviously uh, somebody had been playing with it, left it behind. It was on the pool table. I picked it up and started playing with it. And I loved it. And um, I asked the manager, I said, look, if somebody has left this behind, if he doesn't come back and, and, and uh, keep, uh, ask for it, he said, can I keep it? And he said, uh, in his broad Dublin accent, he says, well, give us a fiver for it and you can have it, you know? And I said, well, I don't have a fiver. So, well, so I ran around to my mum and I said, ma'am, look, I found this beautiful queue. He said, the guy wants a fiver for it. I said, you know, uh, I'll make it up to you. You know, I'll pay you back and I'll do whatever I can to, to, to get the money back for you. You know, so she gave me a fiver. Uh, I went into the post office, which was next to Jason's at the time, and I changed it into the old five-pound notes, you know. And uh, I put two in one pocket and three in the other, and went back around to him with the with the cue. And uh, I put my hands into the the pocket with the two-pound, pulled it out, and I said, "Look, uh, my mum, she couldn't afford the fiver, <laughs> so she already had she already had the two pounds, you know." And uh, he looked at the cue. He looked at the two pound and he says, give me the two pound. And he took the two pound out of my hand. And that's the cue that I've had uh, since I was about 11. And it's the cue I, I won everything, the World Junior Championship, World Amateur Championship, World Professional Championship and anything else I ever won from that two pound cue, you know. You still use and it And needless now? to say, of course, I still gave the three pound back to my mother, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you, eventually you did, Ken. Yeah, eventually. You started yeah. making the big I probably, ga- I probably gambled with it, you know, and I try- tried to, to spin it up to a, a few more, you know. But, uh, Are you yeah, still no, using it's that still, the, yeah. still, still yeah. the same queue. I've had it since I was 11. I'm 47 now, so I've had it for 36 years and it's uh, it's uh, certainly repaid the £2 that I paid for it. It was money well invested. And thankfully, nobody came back to reclaim it, otherwise I was rightly in trouble, you know. Uh, this isn't like, uh, you know, a trigger's yard brush and only fools and horses, is it? Where it's <laughs> no, basically no. replaced it uh, yeah, part yeah. by part. <laughs> uh, it was b- broken at the end uh, and I had to get a, 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 sm- a small little... Um, uh, but just chains and stuff like that. But that—that's it. Now the shaft is the same, and uh, I've had it all those years. And it is a little bit warped as well. It is true. It is warped in the middle, uh, and when you roll it on the table, it sort of 
goes like a, a boomerang, but it's uh, it's something that I've got used to over the years, and uh, yeah, it served me well. One of the men you beat in '97 mm. on your way to that world title, although he did avenge that defeat in the final in '98, was John Higgins, who's going to be yeah. out there today, closing in mm. on his fifth world title. Can are you envious at all when you look at him, a friend, a contemporary? Uh, uh, yeah, I am. I, I was looking, uh, you know, when they set the table up there for. Uh, when they took the two tables out and it's down to one table and uh, I was looking at the one table and I said, wow, I got envious. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be something special going out there? How how those guys are feeling? You know, Mark Selby, defending champion, John Higgins, you know, one of my main adversaries, you know, all the way through, like, the 90s and the noughties of course you know someone I beat on the way to the world championship and then he beat me the following year in the final when I was trying to defend it uh, and I was I was a little bit envious yeah I thought but how special it would be for him you know going out what he'd be feeling and trying to win his fifth world championship which is quite quite incredible he's one of the best players that we've ever seen in the game uh, one of the nicest guys one of the toughest opponents and uh, it would be an, an amazing achievement if he could win his fifth world title and tie along with the, the great Ronnie O'Sullivan You've mentioned your mum Rose a few times mm. already over mm. the, the uh. last 20 minutes or so, Ken. We're very sorry to hear that she passed away really recently. Just a, a clearly huge influence. Anytime I've heard mm. you speak at length about your career, the influence of your mum seems to come up time and time again. Mm. Yeah, she was. Yeah, She was a great woman, worked very, very hard. We lost her father uh, when I was 13. So obviously, you know, she had a tough job bringing up the four of us, but she was... Uh, she was a great influence and uh, she never wanted me to be a snooker player. That was the funny thing, you know. She wanted me to get a real job. Like, you know, she used to say that to me even, you know, when I was a professional and, you know, she never liked the attention. I remember when I came back after winning the World Amateur Championship and again, it was like meeting and greeted at the airport and I, I hugged her and kissed her and gave her the cup, you know, and she says, with all this attention, she said, live on 6-1 years. I wish you never had a one. You know, <laughs> she was she was that type. She was that shy, uh, but she was a great worker. She had great faith as well. She went to mass every day, uh, praying for me and the rest of us as well in the family. Of course, my two brothers and sister, and uh, she had a she had a tough life. Like you know, losing her husband so young. She was only forty nine when she lost her husband. So, but she was a great influence. Great influence on us all. And um, yeah, at least uh, you know, I'm glad in a way that she saw me. Uh, win the world championship and uh, I just hope that she would have been proud of me you know because uh, you know she sacrificed a lot and anything I did or won you know was certainly for her and what what, what she did for us like you know I think it might have been that Finn Ruan article again that I read where he described the scene in Ranelagh when you arrived home and your mother everybody else was making a massive fuss as you mentioned there and your mother treated yeah. you as, as though you'd just sort of arrived home from a normal day in an office oh, job wow. <laughs> yeah yeah oh, well that, that's, that's what she would have yeah. you know she that's the way she was she was a real good old country woman and uh, you know she she never had any airs or graces could say anything to you you know and she uh, you know anything that was in her mind just came straight out there was no beating around the bush you know and uh, whether I was world champion or not I was only just her son and she she was delighted you know she you know but the attention sometimes she didn't like too much you know and she used to bake quite a lot I tell this funny story that she used to bake she was a cook all her life, you know, and uh, but every on Saturdays and weekends, uh, her apple tarts became very, very famous, and uh, she, 
the local uh, Peter Dwan who owned a local spa asked her would she make a few apple tarts on the Saturday you know so she used to make apple tarts on the Saturday and they'd be they'd be gone like after a couple of hours so uh, we used to have to sometimes drop the uh, apple tarts down unless somebody from the spa had to come up you know and of course uh, one Saturday morning they were too busy down the spa nobody had come up so uh, Muggins here had to get up out of bed with a full breadboard of about 12 apple tarts and I'm walking down the middle of Renla at about 10 o'clock in the morning uh, just won the world championship and I'm carrying these 12 apple tarts to the local <laughs> spark from me from my mother with people like beeping the horn you know Darty what are you doing is this a part time job you know uh, and that was that was that was that's what it was like in my house so whether you're a world champion or not you still had to do the, the apple tart run to the local spar. you know People might have seen you recently on the restaurant the TV show yeah. did you make any apple tarts there? <laughs> any of your mum's cooking? Uh, no I mean you know the the menu that we picked for uh, the show, which was fantastic. I really had such a wonderful time. It was doing it. You know, it was a great, great experience. And um, uh, Louise, who was the the pastry chef, she uh, I told him, I told her about my mum's cooking and stuff like that. So we thought like half of the menu was an old, really, to my mum and and us growing up, like of you know little things that we used to look forward to like fish on the Friday fish and cold cannon on the Friday uh, you know a chicken and mushroom volavant that was a treat like you know during the you know the 70s and 80s and of course the uh, the trio of desserts was an apple tart lemon meringue and uh, like a chocolate eclair and uh, I think she did a really good job Louise it was fantastic and uh, you know the funny thing was and the sad thing was that even though I wanted to do this restaurant and, and it was like a a dedication really to my mum and that that she didn't actually get to see it but I think she she would have been uh, she she would have liked the food and she would have eaten it she would have had some criticism about it <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> being my mother you know I wouldn't have done the call cannon like that you know what I mean I would have done it a bit different or you know but she I think she would have enjoyed it but sadly she never got to see it unfortunately you know Some text coming in for you here Ken I met Kent already many years ago at the Malta Open I was on holidays with a friend we chanced our arm at the mid-session interval and asked the guy at the door to ke- tell Ken Doherty the two Irish lads were looking for a chat Ken came out spoke <laughs> to us such a relaxed uh, I'm down to earth kind of guy such a relaxed and down to earth guy I'll never forget that from Marin in Waterford ask Ken mm. does he know is there any Irish snooker coming through so I suppose what the scene is like now Yeah um, there's some there's some great talent there in Ireland. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, a lot of the snooker clubs, you know, like uh, property got so expensive in Ireland uh, to keep a snooker table. It, it's very very difficult for it to pay, and so a lot of the snooker clubs are are closing down. But it's still quite popular. I mean, when I did that show, uh, Lucky Break on uh, Satanta, looking for, you know, a sort of a, a, a young prodigy, there was. Lots of I was I was quite hopeful. Lots of lots of talent, young talent, you know, like kids of ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Um, so hopefully somebody will come through. It's it is very very difficult, um, but hopefully somebody will come through from from Ireland again. Ken, just the you know you're twenty years on now, and mm. in fact, before I ask you about, that, I wanted to ask you about the significance of it looking back now. But you are you didn't qualify this year, which meant you were mm. at least able to go straight into your BBC work, and you're doing a phenomenal job there, working mm. with these sort of legends like Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis. Yeah. You must be pretty proud of what you're doing in there. Um, yeah, I I really enjoy it, you know, and. Um, as I said, like if if I wasn't working for the BBC, I'd be sitting at home watching it for the seventeen days on the couch. And anyway, uh, mm. but I really I really do enjoy it. They're a great bunch of lads. Um, 
you know, they're, they're great champions and great commentators and great analysts. And like, you know, we all sort of get on very, very well. It's, I love I love working with like the likes of Virgo and Dennis and 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 uh, Willie and the commentary box. You know, they're completely different to to the likes of Steve and JP and Stephen Hendry, even in the uh, studio, and of course Hazel as well and Jason. But um, it's it's completely uh, different from you know when you're when you're playing. It's not nothing beats playing, and you'd love to be out there playing and competing and and uh, watching watching the uh, final today. But you're still involved, you know, and you're still, you know, you're talking about you're talking about a game that you love, and and uh, it, it's just it is. It, it, I I love working with these guys, you know. They they become like really good friends now over the years, and uh, it's uh, it's nice to be still a part of it. I'd rather be playing there though today, sure. to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, no, it's lovely to reflect on something that was so significant. Not mm. we just we don't have many Irish world champions in anything really. Mm. It has the significance yeah. of achieving that hit you more as the years have gone on? Uh, I think you sort of, you get a little bit softer in your old age and then you sort of say, yeah, well, you know, at least I was sort of world champion and, you know, I sort of, I won it once. I, I wish I had it won it more times. I tried my hardest, you know. It would have been nice to, you know, to be Higgins in 98 or even to win it in, in 03 when I lost that close final to Mark Williams, 1816. Um you sort of you look back and you say, yeah, well, at least my name is on that cup, and it was nice to be world champion, you know. And uh, you do sort of get a little bit nostalgic in your old age as you as you get a bit older. Listen, Kemi, better let you get to work there. It's a big day mm. on the BBC. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Great to talk to and you. No problem. And uh, good luck with the show, lads. Owen Kenan Murph here from Second Captain sitting in for Ryan Tilbury this morning. A lot of reaction coming in to one of the nicest men in Irish life, Murph, not just Irish board, Ken Doherty. I interviewed Ken, one of my first ever interviews coming fresh-faced out of college. Okay. A radio package that I was trying and failing to put together. So I talked to him about 97. I was in Jason's in Ranelagh and that was still around. Interviewed him for maybe half an hour. So I was always very generous with his time and brilliant at, at storytelling. Only slight problem is that I had forgotten to record the piece or the batteries had, had wasted. Something had gone wrong. Oh, no. And I had to say to him, sorry, Ken, can we record this entire thing again? <laughs> Could you just repeat that entire he, interview? He threw you out the window. Yeah, exactly. No, he gave you longer and, and told the stories just as well. So Same sorry. thing happened to me once with Roy Keane. No. Oh, yeah. I did a seven to eight minute interview with Roy Keane at the Irish Guide, mm-hmm. Guide Dogs for the Blind. I remember it was around the time that they had signed Louis Saha because mm. he talked about him. Uh, and it was only later as I returned to the radio station that I realised I had no interview because I hadn't pressed record. So these things happen. Jarlath on Twitter says, my granny loved snooker and hit every ball with Ken. She said Ken nearly killed her with tension but was thrilled when he won. True gent, great Irish champion. Hi Ken, can I have my cue back? Asks uh, Anonymous <laughs> Dexter. My dad was Lord Mayor of Dublin at the time and we had a great day with Ken and his late mother in the mansion house. Great memories, says John Lynch. I think I read a bit about your dad actually John he faxed his congratulations to Ken Doherty which shows which dates the <laughs> world championship victory of Ken Doherty which happened in 1997 uh, brilliant to have Ken Doherty join us from BBC Studios in Sheffield really enjoyed that hope you did as well we'll play something now from one of their hometown boys this is the brilliant Richard Hawley from Sheffield
Tonight, the streets are ours by Richard Hawley. And we have got a couple of people taking umbrage with my comment that there wasn't much great music around in 1997 when Ken Doherty won the World Championship. Britpop won, surely. Colin on Twitter, bad year for music. Radiohead, The Verve, Spiritualized, Primal Scream. Come on, lads. And Michael at Second Captain says, amateur sellouts. Se- says that we're amateur sellouts. 1997 gave us the charlatans telling stories and Chemical Brothers block rocking beats and the prodigies fat of the land. That may all be true, but we can't forget that Barbie Girl by Aqua spent about 51 of the 52 weeks of the year and, uh, on top of it. Mbop by Hanson was the fifth uh, biggest selling single of, of 1997. Back so, I mean, yeah. RTE Radio 1 Sport with the all-new Kia Sportage. Practical, stylish and affordable. You can get more for less at your local Kia dealer now.
John Murray's here for this morning's sports news. John, how are you? Uh, great, Owen. Uh, nice to be here among you all. And um, just, I was just saying to Kieran there, listening to Ken Doherty, the nostalgia of it all 20 years ago, but I've only watched about maybe three or four minutes of the current final between Mark Selby and John well, Higgins. Well, don't tell Ken that. He's working in the BBC for it. So <laughs> it's best we well, explain yeah, His stuff this has now. been very good. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but just a reminder that uh, on day two of that final, John Higgins carries a 10-7 lead uh, over Selby and it'll come to a conclusion this evening. The first two 18 frames uh, wins. Now, a busy weekend of Premier League football. As we know, Liverpool could put a bit of distance between themselves and their challengers for Champions League places if they could win at Watford tonight. Their cause has been helped by the failure of both Manchester United and City to win their games yesterday. The highlight at Old Trafford, I don't know what you think yourself, lads, was Marcus Rashford's very good impression of Ashley Young (laughs) in securing United's (laughs) first half penalty. And Anyway, despite being four points adrift of leaders Chelsea, Spurs manager Mizio Pochettino feels they can put psychological pressure on them by beating West Ham on Friday, a day ahead of Chelsea's home game against Middlesbrough, which shouldn't be too uh, taxing. A sad weekend, of course, uh, for Sunderland Football Club, relegated after 10 years in the Premier League. And this is what our man John O'Shea had to say about it. It's uh, The table never lies. We've been able to... Thing on the last few seasons, and we've uh, produced some some amazing fight backs. But it was uh, a bit too much this season. Um, we gave ourselves too much to do again from the start of the season, and um, you saw it out today. Yeah, the chances kind of again we had to, to kind of to, okay, form it. We know they're a good team as well, but um, we had enough chances there to to take a lead, especially towards in the second half as well, and then obviously. We get done with a minute or two to go, obviously, because we have to, we have to take some chances to try to get those, those goals. But um, look, we're obviously distraught. We all wanted to, for everyone to support that we got again today. Um, but it's not, it's not a nice feeling. What do you think the reasons are for you going down? That is obviously performances, um, results. Yeah, the obvious things at the end of the season the, the lead table never lies David Moyes <laughs> yeah and maybe David Moyes' management is that there's that, it was a remarkable audio it's, you sort of forget how much despite the fact that everybody knew Sunderland were going down for most of the season I would say certainly for the last number of weeks it still hits a guy like John O'Shea pretty hard who's won Premier Leagues and Champions yeah. Leagues and all the rest and suddenly at the very towards the very end of his career he's getting well, relegated. It was his 36th birthday actually. Yes, yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. yeah. He was speaking as well about how uh, the the fact that they get relegated means that everyone you know the the jobs around the the club for like the, the support staff there's going to be redundancies there as well and they have to wear that which is just again it just like kind of like brings it home to you that uh, okay like the footballers themselves are probably going to be okay they're mm-hmm. going to get like 40% pay cuts or something but it does actually just massively hurt the business that is Sunderland football club as well mm, interesting will John O'Shea be there next season we'll see Mm. <laughs> new man new what man in the door yeah. might look for young yeah, blood I don't, I don't know he, he, it's not like he played all that much this season either so no mm. no. And he, anyway a much happier weekend for one Anthony Joshua and uh, he has been reflecting uh, about his plans or about Saturday night that great win over Vladimir Klitschko and what he intends to do now uh, want, I don't know if you saw the uh, fight yeah. yourselves incredible yeah. Yeah. incredible <laughs> 90,000 fans wonderful wonderful but anyway this is what uh, Anthony Joshua was saying yesterday to the BBC. I want to start planning how I'm going to improve because I know I know my next fights people are going to be watching you know and I think okay cool 
I've done my learning now. I can't keep on saying in my next fight, yeah, oh, he's still learning and he's a relative novice. Look, I've got to get better. So I get back to the gym and I find out where, where my weaknesses are and just improve on them. And it's simple as that. But that's what you said, isn't it? I'm not perfect. And that's the no. important thing that you keep learning from yeah, these. Yeah. What I'm saying is that in boxing, the similarities are like the Arlies, Tysons, Lennox Lewis's, Larry Holmes. And if you're not as good as these guys, don't even talk and be mentioned in the same breath as these guys. But what I'm trying to say is that I may not be these guys, but who I am is good enough for where I'm at. Yeah, it was such a throwback, the fight. Yeah. I was actually out on, at uh, Friends Engagement Drinks on Saturday night. and How I'd, inconsiderate of them. I know, yeah, unbelievable. But they were considerate enough to have it pumping all over the big screens in the pub. Yeah, and so. even when we arrived, everybody, people from different groups were all talking about this fight that was happening. It captured the imagination in a way that fights don't normally do. And then this almost never happens, certainly in the last number of years in heavyweight boxing. It actually exceeded the yeah, hype. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what happens is one of the two. You're either looking forward to something yeah. or a fight ends up being really good. The, the fact that the, the, the fight actually matched the hype beforehand uh, is in and of itself almost uh, unique in the last 20 years. I'd and say. Katie Taylor got her uh, Yeah, we should mention that big as well. Victory there, five yeah. out of five. Yeah, she's absolutely flying it. And, and uh, uh, talk I'd, of a, a tilt at a world title later in the year. Yeah, I don't know there's a bit of annoyance that she was on too early in the night. They, they don't know if that was switched late or what exactly happened, but it would have been nicer for her to be seen by more people. But she was on the on the card fighting really well. And I think she'll be seen by plenty of people when she wins a world title in a few months' time, as you yeah, say, in probably like in Ireland. Her. Yeah, they like her indeed. I, I should wench, uh, mention another uh, big Irish uh, sporting achievement at the weekend. Badminton doesn't often get mentioned in dispatches, but <laughs> Donegal siblings, Chloe and Sam McGee, uh, well, they took a bronze medal away from the European Championships in the mixed doubles. And it's the first time we've ever won a medal in badminton. John Murray, thank you very much. Good Cheers, to hear. Lads. The Babington flag is flying high. Uh, you are listening to the Ryan Doverty Show with Owen, Ken and Murph from Second Captains in Ryan's Place this morning. If you missed our chat in the first hour, we're talking to Ken Doherty from Sheffield, 20 years on from his World Championship win and he really paid, I think, a lovely tribute to his mum who passed away very recently. Clearly, she was his biggest fan, Murph, albeit a fan who never Man. watched any of his games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, uh, Ken mentioned it there, actually, and Ken was talking to journalist Kieran Cunningham uh, a couple of weeks ago and he told this amazing story about his mum. He got to the world, uh, Ken got to the world final again in 2003 uh, and Ken said she went to Houston Station, got the first train that was leaving, went to Waterford, just up and down to kill the time. She wanted to be on her own, couldn't bear to have anyone talking to her about the final or hear anything about it. The train stopped in Waterford and the cleaners came on. My mum decided to help them clean the train, then she went back to her seat and back up to Dublin, which is a pretty amazing story. Even more spectacular than the cycling around in yeah. 97. To Lighting candles in every church in, uh, in Dublin. Apropos of your discussion regarding disastrous, madly expensive island festival, it reminds me of the very first year of the fail at Trip to Tip when nothing was planned or organised properly. But over the years, it was super. So there's a bit of consolation for Ja Rule there. Maybe he'll mm. get his fire festival in the Bahamas many, right second time around. How many $25,000 tickets were there sold for the original fail at Trip to Tip? I would say probably... I'm going to say no $25,000 tickets. Mm. I think if anyone I, paid $25,000, yeah, it's a I, 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 Yeah, I, I think that there, is, there, are, there are different standards at play here is what I'm saying. You know, I mean, if sure, extremely rich kids got kind of screwed over on this one, which is unfortunate and yet also kind of hilarious. <laughs> uh, and we, we, you know, we just have to accept that. You know, we have to factor that into our thinking when we're comparing it to Fela's trip to tip. Next up, we've got a hell of a guest for you. Record field of 601 starters, brave chilly winds and a steady drizzle in the 71st Boston Marathon. 
The world's most famous foot race even attracts a leggy lady, Kay Switzer of Syracuse, who did not finish. Officials tried to jostle her off the road. The winner, Dave McKenzie, a 24-year-old New Zealander, who trims 48 seconds off the record, winning by 300 yards. That leggy lady referred to there, Kay Switzer, was Catherine Switzer, who in fact did finish that 1967 Boston Marathon. It was felt at the time that women probably couldn't finish that distance, so maybe our newsreader there just got a little bit mixed up. He refused to believe that it was possible, yeah, Yeah, a woman could uh, finish a marathon. She did have to overcome the significant obstacle of an irate race official trying to throw her off the track when he discovered he had a woman running in his race, of all things. And just two weeks ago, at 70 years of age, Catherine celebrated the 50th anniversary of that 1967 run by returning to Boston and doing it all over again. I think you're going to enjoy Catherine Switzer's attitude and she's coming up next. Welcome back to the Ryan Turberty Show with Second Captains this morning. It's a bank holiday Monday, so I'm going to guess you're probably listening to this in a fairly chilled out mood, taking advantage of the day off. But if anyone deserves to have their feet up today, it's our next guest. Earlier this month, Catherine Switzer ran one of the world's great long distance races, the Boston Marathon, 50 years on from her debut in the event. Back in 1967, she became the first woman to officially enter and finish the race, overcoming some fairly heavy opposition and forever changing the perception of women's physical abilities. Catherine Switzer, welcome to the show. Wonderful, Owen. Wonderful to be here. Honestly, I don't have my feet up, but uh, my head <laughs> is still in the clouds after this race. It was fabulous. I'd imagine so. And I should have also mentioned that you ran it in a more than respectable time of four hours, 44 minutes and 31 seconds. So you enjoyed the day. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was uh, the training had gone really well, but um, I was exhausted uh, at the start because there was so much media interest in what was happening. I mean, one day, you know, a couple of days before Boston, for instance, I did 22 interviews. It was just unbelievable. But, you know, we really are very anxious for that media because we're trying to pass the torch on to the next 50 years. So this was a look back at 50 years and a look forward at 50 years. And we want everybody to be aware of the important changes we need to make still with women in the world. And uh, actually then to, to run um, well, I mean, 444 is not really excellent, although it's a Boston qualifier by 11 minutes for a 70-year-old, I stopped eight times on the course to do interviews, if you can imagine. And I walked every water station. So um, I had this harbored fantasy that that perhaps I could run it actually faster than I did when I was 20, which was four hours, 20 minutes. So who knows? It might still be in there. Oh, and I'm going to go for it in another race. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Well, that's something I was I wanted to ask you at some point. So you're, you're planning to do more, which is good. Well, you mentioned the amount of media interest there was in you running that race again, Catherine. Was it an emotional kind of a day for you? Were you, were you feeding off the crowds there? It was exceptionally emotional. Um, And it's interesting physiologically. First, I think sometimes when you go into a race and you're wound up as tight as a clock, like I was, um, the, the run relieves that stress and breaks it. And so you relax and you get into just the running itself, which is beautiful and rhythmic. But the crowd, oh, my God. Oh, and it was sensational. There were a million people on the course. It turned out to be a warmish spring day. Um, one of the first after a very bleak um, uh, winter and early late in spring in the in the northeast United States. So everybody was out. It seemed that every hundred people or so of that million were had a sign that said, go, Catherine. And, and they were just screaming. It was really, really fantastic. Um, such a contrast to 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, did the memories, did, were, there, were there memories floating back to you as you ran the course again of the race of the incident 50 years ago? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, don't forget, my last Boston Marathon run on the course actually was 1976, probably before most of your, your listeners are even born. I'd run Boston eight times, but of course, the seminal race was the first in 1967, when the official jumped off the press bus and ran down the street after me and attacked me and tried to throw me out of the race and rip off my bib numbers, which were numbers 261. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and that was a very traumatic experience for a girl who was running her first big race. I was only 20. Um, I made the decision then uh, to finish the race no matter what, and I did. Um, but it was such a cold, bleak day in 67, and there were hardly any spectators. And some were nice to me. They cheered me. But uh, in 67, there were plenty of them who really shouted at me to go home to make dinner for my husband in the kitchen. And and um, the, the more abuse I got, <laughs> the, the better I felt, if you see what I mean, the more <laughs> determined I was. And to have that contrast with to this year, which was just kind of buoyed and floating and feeling fit and healthy and having everybody cheering was just absolutely sensational. Well, what was the attitude? What were the attitudes that needed changing towards women running marathons in 1967? Was it that you shouldn't be running that sort of distance or that you couldn't run a marathon? First of all, society in general perceived women athletes as um, mannish or that they would turn into a man or get masculine attributes if if they um, did anything arduous. Okay, and, you know, big legs, hair on your chest. And certainly the biggest myth was that your uterus was going to fall out. You'd never be able to have children. And this was a very dangerous thing for women to do. Well, of course, it's nonsense. We know that women actually have more endurance and stamina than men, and that, in fact, childbirth is one reason why we have this extra endurance and stamina, and also a fat supply. All your listeners there who want to lose five pounds, don't worry about it. That fat's a very good fuel resource, so rejoice in that and start running. Anyway, so that was the prevailing notion there that, that also it was really kind of unacceptable well, totally unacceptable, to step into what was considered a male domain. And the marathon in particular was considered the most arduous sort of mythic heroic distance. And, and to have a woman do it was somehow um, humbling to, to men's perception of themselves out there. Now, that was not true among male marathoners who were really, really welcoming to me. And in fact, um, Running is a very unusual sport in that it is almost gender free. You know, we all run, we run together, we support each other. It's not about being male and female, it's about being runners um, or joggers, even. And we all applaud each other. So that was a, the perception, however. And even my coach um, didn't believe a woman anywhere at any time could run a marathon. And that's what propelled me to Boston in 67. Because during practice, I told him that I would like to run the Boston Marathon. He had run it 15 times and regaled me with stories about it. And I was so entranced with the idea that I said I wanted to run it. And he said, a woman can't. Women are too weak and too fragile. You're going to break down. And I said, but I'm running 10 miles a night with you. What are you talking about? And he said, but 10 is not 26. So he finally said if I showed him in practice, he would take me to Boston. And indeed, the day we ran our 26 miles in practice, I said, let's do another five miles, making sure we could absolutely finish. And we ran 31 miles and he fainted 
at the end of the workout. So he was so impressed with my capability that he was very proud of me and helped me register for the race. So the issue also in Boston in 67 was not just that I was female, but that I had actually entered the race, which they said was against the rules. And these rules, of course, were never printed anywhere because they were only tradition because they didn't believe women could do that and and wouldn't be welcome anyway if they did or women themselves wouldn't want to run. So it effectively called into question not only the mythic ad, mythological kind of attitudes against women, but it called into issue the exclusion of women from events that are free and open in the public. So um, it was it was a seminal moment. It, we weren't to realize that so much at the time, but within a few hours after the race, I think the world realized it. It was certainly an event that changed my life. That's an interesting phrase you used that you weren't necessarily aware of it at the time. I, I before when you decided you wanted to run this marathon, you talk about some of the hoops that have to be jumped through there. Were you consciously taking a stand, or were you just an athlete wanting to run a race who happened to be a woman? I just I was just a kid who wanted to run the Boston Marathon and I was there as a reward from my coach. My coach said, I'm really proud of you, but you have to register for the race. It's a serious event. You know, you're a card carrying member of the Athletic Federation and you don't mess around with the rules. And I thought, oh, we can just go up to Boston and jump in this circus, you know, and jump in this free for all run. And, um, of course, I knew up in the front of the race it was very serious. They had the top Olympic athletes there, some of the great legends of running in the world. And I thought, what an honor it is to be able to run on the same course as these guys up front. Um, It was like the last great open amateur competition. You you can't play in World Cup soccer or or on the golf links with Tiger Woods. But this is the Boston Marathon seemed to be an open event. So... No, that's that's what was the deal is that it was a reward from him. So I knew women could do the distance and I so I didn't need to prove that. Um, And and wearing a number was the thing that had caused the issue. If I if I had run numberless, I think the the officials would have shouted at me, but certainly wouldn't have tried to physically eject me from the race. How did you manage to get the number? Well, because I signed um, the entry form KV Switzer with my initials. Now, this was not to defraud them, but the fact that I had, al- had been signing my name that way since I was 12. So the forms went in um, as a team from the Syracuse Harriers, a couple of guys from the cross-country team, my boyfriend also, who was not a runner. That's another story. He was an ex-All-American football player, came in handy, um, <laughs> which I'll tell you in a minute. And the entry forms went in, and it was a snowy, sleety morning. We were all in the car, and the co- my coach said, I'm going to pick up our packet because the numbers were together in the team packet. And we'd had our physicals in advance, so the medical certificates were all there. We didn't have to go and take the medical certificate. And it came out to the car, and we pinned on our numbers, and went over, parked the car, and started to warm up together. And it, the snow was coming down. It was utterly miserable conditions. So the second thing is is that I was in a baggy gray sweatsuit, and from the distance I looked like, just like one of the guys. We all looked alike out there, warming up. The men, of course, knew that I was a woman, but the officials didn't see. If, if it had been a warm day and I'd been in my cute shorts and top, probably the officials would have seen me at the start line. Well, so they, another coincidence. Yeah, they may not have seen you at the start line, but as you say, they did see you at some point early enough in the course. And one man in particular saw you and took great umbrage, Jock Semple, the race director. What exactly happened? I'm looking at the image now, which is just incredible to look at. Maybe you can describe what happened. 
Yeah. Okay. So the beginning of every race is, you know, a happy time. You're all laughing and joking because, you know, pain is going to come later. And at about a mile and a half, um, the press truck came by us and we're taking pictures off the back of a truck. And we were waving to our mothers on the nightly news when um, all of a sudden I heard footsteps behind me, uh, a scraping sound of leather shoes, not not the rubber shoes that I was hearing, the bump, 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 bump. It was so scraping sound. I turned really quickly just in time to see this ferocious face right up next to me screaming at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and threw me back and tried to pull off my bib number off the front and had it on the front and the back. And I jumped away from him, but he grabbed me by the shirt. And my coach was batting at him, screaming, leave her alone, jock, she's okay. And I thought, my God, does my coach know this maniac? And I didn't even know where he came from or who he was. And I, I did suddenly know he was an official because he had a, on his coat lapel a, um, a ribbon, a blue and gold ribbon that said BAA, Boston Athletic Association. I said, oh, my gosh, it's somebody serious. And he swatted my coach away and said, you stay out of this, Arnie. My coach was named Arnie. And it turns out I found out that they had run together many years before in Boston because this race director what well, used to be a very good runner. He was protecting his race, obviously. He thought I was a clown. He thought I had in, interloped it and gotten, as he said, my entry by subterfuge. But anyway, he was after me. Um, mayhem the cameras were clicking everything was happening in, right in front of the press truck my boyfriend who was the ex-all-american football player came running full tilt and hit the official with a so shoulder charge that sent him flying through the air and out of the race instead and arnie yelled my coach yelled run like hell <laughs> and it's hilarious in the retelling um, and everybody loves the story of the, the, the maiden runner being saved by her gallant boyfriend on the night, you know, the white charger. But it was terrible, actually, at the time. It was really very, very humiliating and quite frightening and uh, embarrassing, you know, in front of the press. And, and, and they all wanted me to quit. And they didn't believe that I was for real. And I had to make the decision, which I made instantly, that I was going to finish this race no matter what. On my hands and my knees, I was going to finish this race because I knew if I didn't, people would say, see, women are always barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And, and a marathon is really tough. You, you can, anything can happen. You know, it's a diabolical race. You can be in the shape of your life and, and have something that knocks you out of the race completely. And as any marathoner knows, that's part of the allure of it. It's a little like mountain climbing that way. And uh, I couldn't have anything happen to me. I had to finish no matter what, no matter how tired I was or injured or whatever might happen, I had to finish the race. Fortunately, I did. Um, you know, at about 21 miles, I stopped being angry at the official. This guy was an ignorant product of his time that he needed to be convinced. And the only way to convince him was to get other women to run. And the only way to get other women to run was to give them a welcoming, non-intimidating environment and an opportunity to try. Because women themselves were fearful of all the myths and fearful of trying anything arduous or, or exciting and, and um, uh, uh, that required a lot of work. And if I could give them that opportunity, I know that knew that they could feel as empowered and as um, fearless as I felt from running. And I really wanted to do that. So when I finished the race, 
I felt fabulous. You know, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was really amazing. Again, though, I still didn't know if that this was a big deal. I knew that we had gotten our picture taken, but I had no idea until midnight when we stopped the car on the way home to back to the university that when we saw the newspapers. Um, Boston in those days alone, Boston had seven daily papers and uh, several editions. And in all of the papers, this picture was everywhere. And I knew then it had gone around the world because they were all on UPI and AP in those days. And the wire services were very, very active. Um, It was phenomenal. The story was everywhere. That's a lot to take in, Catherine. And I have to applaud you, first of all, for being able to finish the race in the first place. I've, I've run a few marathons myself extremely slowly and I, can only, I can't actually imagine what it's like to be physically attacked in front of the, the country's media at the time to, to actually get through that. Were, were there moments of doubt for the rest, for the rest of the 23 miles, whatever it was, from, from that point on? No, it, there was only the split second when I was so so terrified by what had happened. Yeah, I mean, he came out of the blue. I was really blindsided by it. And as everybody knows, when you're out running and you're lost in your thoughts and all of a sudden you get nearly hit by a car or a dog runs out and nearly bites you, you know, your adrenaline spikes. Um, and that's what had happened to me. And I, there was that split second when I thought, should I quit this? And I said, oh, no, not in a million years. Um, I have to stay in the race. So I went into a trough And that's the only time I had a little doubt because coming out of that trough of adrenaline, fortunately, it happened to my coach. It happened to all of us. All of us really kind of went, oh, God, we'll never get through this. This is, you know, it was so cold. It was just utterly miserable. And um, then you kind of wake up like you're coming out of anesthesia. And then I started feeling really, really great. And as I said, by the time I finished the race, you know, I had blood coming out of my shoes, um, uh, you know, from the blisters. We all did in those days. But it was that was pretty icky, but um, that was the only thing that hurt. Everything else felt felt really amazing. The amazing thing to me is making a decision like that at twenty. Um, as a, I mean, I'm still a girl, and although I finished the race a grown woman, <laughs> I must say it was a very maturing experience. Uh, I was just very very resolute, and I think I had since I had been running since I was about twelve. You know, I had this sort of sense of empowerment and strength for for many years that running always gave me. The race director went ahead and told the police to pull me out when nobody was looking. And the police said, you know, we're out of this. Forget it. So I had this sort of lingering paranoia. And I was right. You know, I thought maybe I had over-exaggerated that. But that's actually the case. I was also, you have to know, disqualified from the race. We all were. Um, for fraudulent entry, for running with men, for running more than a mile and a half, and for running without a chaperone, um, and not only DQ'd from the race, but also expelled from the athletic federation. So it was a really tough situation, and the tougher it got, the tougher I got. Um, but but I knew I knew the direction, which was create opportunities, become a better athlete. Um, we organized. The women organized, naturally. Women are good at that. It took us five years, but we got women official in Boston in 1972. I could finally become an athlete. I, I hunkered down, trained my brains out, and improved my time from 4.20 to 2 hours 51, which I did in 1975, which laid a lot of skeptics and critics to rest, which I was very, very pleased with. But it only reinforced my feeling that 
uh, there are millions of women out there who had incredible opportunities, I mean, incredible talent if they only had the opportunities. And from that, I had um, the vision to write a, a very big business proposal. It's time to Avon Cosmetics, the largest cosmetics company in the world. And together with them, over the course of the next 20 years, organized um, 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And that led to getting the women's marathon into the Olympic Games in 1984. So I, I, I love how the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And I must tell you, every day I thank Jock Semple for attacking me in the Boston Marathon because as bad as it was, he gave me a vision for the future. That's a vision, yeah, it's an incredible way to look at it. It's a vision, Catherine, that you've carried through to this day. You mentioned briefly the, this 261 Fearless, which is a foundation that you've set up and you had a big group of runners running with you in 2017. Is this part of the same thing that you talked about there back in the 60s and 70s? This is still an attempt for you to, by you to help to empower women around the world, really. We're not just talking about being an active sports person, but empower them in other ways. Yes. Oh, and I'm so glad you know you brought that up, and I, I was going to bring that up as as the final thing. You think you think that you know your legacy maybe is getting the women's marathon in the Olympic Games, and that that to me was uh, significant, hugely significant, changed the landscape. But just a few years ago, suddenly that bib number of mine two six one became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. And we were getting hundreds of letters from, from men and women, um, and, and they were tattooing it on themselves, for heaven's sakes, not just wearing it, they were tattooing it. And I said, we've got to, we've got to figure this out. What does this mean? Well, what we did is we formed a nonprofit uh, foundation, 261 Fearless, which uses running as the vehicle to empower women around the world. We started a global series of clubs. Community clubs are really, really essential so women can get the direct touch in a non-intimidating environment uh, and, and, and run or walk with other women and, and, and just find they're fearless because, as I said, running is very, very transformational. And when we can do that from community to community, whether it's in Ireland or in Afghanistan or Ohio in the United States, we are changing these women's lives. Most of the women, I'm sorry to say, in the world right now still live in a fearful situation. And it's it's difficult to reach many of them because they need the opportunity to experience an alternative to what they live. They need to understand that they can control their own lives, their own destinies, that they can become empowered. And as simple as it sounds, putting one foot in front of the other works. We've seen it work everywhere. Look at Ethiopia. Look at Kenya, what the women runners are doing there. It's fantastic. So with a series of, of 261 community clubs um, with events, with a communications platform, we can get these women, to, and they are already talking to each other, through 261fearless.org. And we encourage everybody listening to join us to start a club in your own area. We, have, we will show you how to do it, to create a non-judgmental community of women. That's the key thing. And uh, we will we will rock it. Um, we've done it before. We'll do it again. You're talking, Catherine, about countries in some cases maybe where uh, there have been limited opportunities for women up up until now. Absolutely, Owen. Oh, there are countries in the world who don't allow their their women to go out of the house or to drive a car or to get an education or carry a passport, and these women have really no hope. And if they can talk to other women through the internet or they can learn to put one foot in front of the other through a community-based running club, whether that's in their house or virtually, they will know they're not alone out there. 
you said at the very top of our chat here that you have got another race in your sights. I would have thought a lot of people would have forgiven you for maybe resting for a few weeks or months. What are you up to? <laughs> well, you know, I as I told you on in Boston, I I did eight interviews on the on the run, and I walked every water station. So I'm actually in better shape than I imagined. The training has has gone well. So let's never never waste your training. Um, I suddenly realized, you know, even though I have won the New York City Marathon in 1974, I never got to run through the streets of New York. That's back when the race used to be four laps of Central Park. So I've decided I'm going to run the New York City Marathon next November um, with a, with a few friends and go, go out on the streets and really celebrate and see see what's see what's there. Well, we'll watch out for you, Catherine, and we wish you the best of luck. It's been amazing listening to you chatting to us today. I'm sure everyone's enjoyed it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Wonderful, Owen, and you you guys take care. Thanks for thinking of me and having me. Children of the Revolution by T-Rex there. A pretty appropriate tune, I think, for our last guest, Catherine Switzer, who started her own revolution 50 years ago. We're the second captains presenting the Ryan Turberty Show this morning. You can get your text in on 51551. And there is a lot of love for our previous guest. I thought you might be impressed with her. I love this story. 
uh, go Catherine I love this story what a victory for women she's a hero and a role model for all women says Martina Langan what a woman inspirational visionary congratulations on your marathon at 70 says Loretta Declan Tyrrell says powerful articulate woman great to hear from at KB Switzer Katrina says Catherine Switzer being interviewed by second captains bit of a legend I think it's hard to dispute that mm-hmm. incredible stuff there vision for the future the amazing and inspiring Catherine Switzer talking now to second captains and Orty what an incredible story Emer says amazing lady great interview fearless in the face of adversity what an inspiration from Catherine McSharry and it goes on along these lines I think you're getting the idea what an amazing inspiring lady Catherine is I'm not a runner but she makes me want to get out there and move that's completely true and I did try to bore Catherine with my own marathon stories there for a couple of seconds but it is <laughs> if funny if you were marking somebody, your yeah. uh, own McDevitt uh, marathon bingo cards <laughs> exactly yeah I think whether you're a man or a woman it's, it's hard not to be inspired by somebody like that that story she tells of being attacked by the race director in 1967 and her boyfriend at the time barreling your man out of the way as she says herself it's funny in the retelling in, so, in some ways and she's got 50 years perspective on it now but at the time it was shocking for her and it was kind of it was seen as as she explains that it was seen that women couldn't run these kind of distances and 1984 I think she said is when the marathon was finally brought into the Olympic Games so for a long time it was assumed that women couldn't and shouldn't be running those kind of distances Well the following year 1968 was an Olympic year obviously and the longest distance that women were racing for was 800 metres And I mean in 1948 the longest distance was 200 metres that was as far as they thought that uh, women could compete. Uh, it, the 800 metres was actually only added at the 1960 Rome, Rome Olympics. So uh, it was 800 metres. Then in 1972, they added the 1500 metres. But even all the way up to 1984, the 1500 metres was the longest race right. that women were competing for. They, they added the 3000 metres and the marathon in LA in 1984. But I mean, that, so you're, you're kind of talking about Catherine Switzer as a, you know, as a visionary and as a, a person who, who changed you know, the the outlook. But I mean, it still took, what was that, 18 years uh, before the before the Olympics decided that the, the women could actually compete at the marathon in, in the Olympic Games. It's and that was largely her work, setting up all these yeah. runs around the world and actually presenting the data to these people in the IOC. This is what you had to do back then as a female athlete. Look, we actually can run these distances. But Our I, uterus will not fall out if yeah, we run exactly, for yeah. 26 miles. I, I kind of got the sense that you were. I was nearly speaking to two Catherine Switzers there. There was the visionary, the person who started this sort of revolution, who was happy to talk about what happened 50 years ago and the impact that it had. But I also got a sense it was Catherine Switzer, the competitive runner. She was a really good runner. Like, mm. She won the New York Marathon. I think she came second in the Boston Marathon. She's really elite level after she got over that first one. And I, I felt that she talked about doing the Boston Marathon this year and having to stop and do all these interviews about being the visionary. Mm. The runner and her seemed to be saying, just let me do a fast marathon. You're slowing yeah, me up here. She's going to do that like, in New York, hopefully. Yeah, four hours, 44 minutes is what she ran at the age of 70 this year. So that's like 24 minutes slower, give or take. Uh, it had a pretty approximate time for the time she ran in While 19... stopping repeatedly to talk yeah, about so 50 years ago. like, you know, uh, like less than a minute a mile. Uh, and if you're stopping for interviews, I think there is definitely room for improvement there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, if, if we're talking marginal gains here, possibly running the entire thing as opposed to having to stop for interviews right out, right off the gate, there's a, there's a big improvement to be made. You can text in to 51551 if you want to add to the love for Catherine Switzer this Bank Holiday Monday morning. We'll be back right after these. RTE Radio 1. All right, I hope you're enjoying your Bank Holiday Monday morning. You are listening to Oh McDevitt from Second Captains with Murph and Ken presenting the Ryan Toberty show for the day. And Ken, I think it's fair to say Trump's 100 days 
was all over the place at the weekend. Yeah, um, and they also had the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which has lately, in, in recent years, kind of turned into this big sort of comedy night, which everybody watches on YouTube. But uh, Trump became the first president since Reagan in 1981, just after he'd been shot, to not go to this event. So he had this really quite bizarre spectacle of uh, Hassan Minhaj, who was a comedian from The Daily Show, trying to do a 20-minute bit on Trump with Trump not being there and nobody really wanting to be to sort of laugh or to be seen, you know, the liberal uh, media elite is currently guffawing at President Trump, who isn't even there. Um, so, I, sorry, usually you'd have, Ob- most recently, Obama will be there every year and he'd take the good-natured joshing on the chin. Well, all the presidents, yeah, all of them, all, all the way before then, and sometimes, you know, it was a little bit, um, a little bit meaner than good-natured joshing. I think Laura Bush, uh, George W. Bush's wife, was particularly annoyed with it, the way that it went one year. But this, it, I mean, Hassan Minhaj did refer a couple of times to how strange it was to have to do this. And what you saw as he was doing this, this attempted kind of funny speech was how difficult, how really difficult it is now to do to make any funny jokes about Donald Trump. I mean, people somehow people need to find a new approach to doing this because there's something about the nature of jokes that when they're all obvious and all pointing in the same direction, they're really no longer funny. I mean, they're not funny at all. Um, nobody was, Nobody could laugh at any of this stuff. Everybody has heard all the things. Everybody has heard all the sort of lines about Trump and... It's like we've kind of run up against the limits here. Somebody's going to have to try to find a way to change the the baseline. Well, know? and also, isn't the idea behind satire, certainly the more aggressive strains of satire, that you want to affect change in some way? Mm. And that hasn't happened. None of, the, none of the Daily Show stuff, none of that actually worked in terms of stopping Trump becoming president in the first place. So now that he's in there, it all feels a little bit toothless. It's not that you should give up on satirizing important people, but it does seem like there's a challenge there to actually find the right way of doing that. How can you do it? I mean, and, and he, the Trump himself, was at, was in Harrisburg doing a rally, uh, talking about the failing uh, media and Hollywood actors gathered together. And the thing is that what he was saying was almost backed up by the images that you saw. It did look, because he wasn't there, it did look like a kind of a self-congratulatory, um, you know, and costed it elite. Uh, also a sort of directionless one that didn't know where, and one that had booked a comedian that couldn't do any funny jokes. It was a, dis- a disastrous event. Really. Yeah, and, and of course, there's also the culpability of the media, in it, which they are facing up to at the moment, have had to face up to for the last uh, six or seven months, mm. that in some way or another, that they haven't just, you know, stood by aghast and, you know, reported uh, somberly on Trump. That They have to wear a lot of the a lot of the responsibility for what happened. Yeah. And th- and like, as a result then, they, c- they can't be seen to just be laughing it up because a lot of people on the left actually blame the media yeah. for it. So yeah. it's it's their fault. So what should have been this, okay, let's, you know, uh, invite the president along, have a few jokes at his expense, he'll have a few jokes at our expense, that's it. Now all of a sudden everyone is looking at each other going, okay, this isn't why are we even here? Yeah, um, I mean Trump himself was was speaking approvingly of uh, Kim Jong Un, the North Korean dictator. Uh, he said, "You know, uh, people are saying, is he sane? I have no idea. But he was a young man of twenty six or twenty seven when his father died. Um, at a very young age, he was able to assume power. Uh, people, I'm sure, tried to take that power away, but he was able to do it. So obviously, he's a pretty smart cookie. And he was speaking about him in such a way that he thought he actually reminds Trump a bit of himself." 
something about the way in which he took over from father, a, a successful yeah. father and, and kept the, the family thing going, you know, so... Um, that's a little uh, worrying, I guess. But um, you have got a, a new Trump potentially in the melting pot here, though a celebrity present in the making. Well, this is this is what, I, and and even one of the bookies has, has sent a press release in this morning, which says Zuckerberg eight to one to become U.S. president before twenty thirty, but eight to one on to run in the 2020 US presidential election. So an election for which he would barely be qualified to stand because he needs to be at least 35. Uh, he would be 36 for the 2020 election, Mark Zuckerberg, the owner of Facebook, uh, and announced at the beginning of the year that his New Year's resolution was to tour all 50 states. He'd already been to some, so he was going to go to all the ones he hadn't been to um, and try to just, you know, meet and connect with ordinary people in all of these states, which is a very strange thing for <laughs> anyone who isn't a politician running for office to do. Yeah, I, I saw someone uh, talking about the, the announcement of the of the British election. It was like, stand by for a month of uh, British politicians eating ordinary food. <laughs> um, Zuckerberg uh, was in with uh, Dan and Lisa Moore, who are um, basically just a couple of Trump uh, supporters in Ohio. He said to his people at Facebook, I want to have dinner with some ordinary people who support Trump. Can you sort of fix that for me? So they did. And they told this family, look, we've got a, a rich guy, a philanthropist from the West Coast uh, who owns a, a famous product going to, you know, are you interested in having more of for dinner? They said, OK. And then Zuckerberg turns up and talks to them about, you know, uh, issues. I mean, this is just after he'd been in, you know, he'd been at, at a fire department uh, eating some of the ribs and chicken they were cooking. Uh, the <laughs> he was at an auto plant, wasn't he? An, an auto plant. The firefighters give each other a ton of crap for being skinny, fat, tall, or short, but they trust each other completely. He wrote that on Facebook. And then he's, you know, he's at this assembly line working on at the Ford Rouge plant in in Michigan, working on the assembly line, helping to put together um, cars. So. It does kind of look as though he's preparing the ground for something. He had in in on Christmas Day, he put out a message saying, Happy Christmas. And people said, oh, Hang on, aren't you an atheist? And he was like, Oh, not anymore. Um I I did, you know, have some issues with that, but now I, I do I do believe, you know, in the Almighty, which is a kind of uh, almost a thing you have to do to be a positive. It's one of the few things they reckon people still have to pretend to be to qualify to be president. But clearly the bar for what a suitable president is has been just completely demolished, knocked out. Of, I mean, it, it might seem ridiculous to think of Zuckerberg, um, you know, who is so young, uh, he barely into his 30s now, as, as having as being someone who already aspires to this type of ambition. But when you see the current incumbent, you, you think, well, why not? I mean, Zuckerberg is far richer uh, far more successful. He also owns what is reckoned to be the most powerful mind control system ever invented. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there was, you know, there's been a lot of analysis on on how uh, the use of Facebook or this Facebook environment allowed this sort of Trump message to spread mm. really quickly and, and to bypass the sort of media that might have held its nose at some of his messages and it just all got out there on Facebook. But if you're talking about the actual owner of Facebook... Um, I wonder if they might make certain changes to the algorithm. The system. You know, yeah. I mean, they, they've looked at, they've done studies on, on you know, the, the the effect that people 
uh, the effect of the newsfeed on people. They can change people's moods. You know, they've, they've done studies where they've said, okay, for group A, we're going to give them a lot of negative stories. Group B, we're going to give them positive stories. We're going to see if that affects their moods. It does. After a while, you know, group B is, is, is uh, posting, you know, negative and depressed updates. Group A feels great about everything. You know, this, this sort of thing is real. It's like it, psychological effects you don't notice but are happening to you all the time. I mean, Zuckerberg also has personal information on basically everybody in America and a map of all the people they're friends with and who they talk to. So, David, actually, the mailing list that you hear politicians talking about, Mark Zuckerberg has that pretty much in the can. Yeah. Texting yeah. here from Kathy Owen is missing the point of satire. Satire attacks everyone, not just one or two individuals or institutions. The Daily Show satirizes everyone and every institution, Republicans and Democrats alike. Well, yes, Cathy, but didn't John Stewart come out of retirement to try to stop Donald Trump becoming the president? I was watching a lot of John Oliver, a lot of Trevor Noah, all these guys over there at the time. And I'm pretty sure they felt personally invested in trying to stop that from happening. And my point was that it didn't work on that level. It, it, it worked as satire in that we laughed a lot in the lead up to the election, but it didn't have the desired effect on I mean, on if voters. I saw one more uh, uh, internet headline that said, uh, Celebrity X in the most epic... Trump takedown you've ever heard. Uh, I, I mean, I must you're have not seen clicking, it. You're not clicking on that anymore. No. You know, you might have, at some point last year, it might have been, oh, I wonder what, you know, X has to say about Trump. Now it's just, I know what they're going to say. I've already heard it before. And, and it's, it's like... It didn't uh, work. Yeah. There I was thinking that second captains had grown up. Get over the pinko yard. Trump won. Brexit won. Get over it. You lost. Okay, let's all get over it and let's get some more music now. We'll go Irish this time. Here's the exceptional, the brilliant, the wonderful James Vincent McMorrow.
That was the brilliant James Vincent McMorrow with Rising Water. We interviewed James as part of our second Captain Sunday series. It was uh, We did a series l- l- last summer. We'll be coming back next July and August, this July and August, I should say, on Sunday mornings. Uh, James is one of the, the more charming guests we had on, I think I'd say. Hi guys, mm-hmm. Elvis and Priscilla got married 50 years ago today. Great to hear you on RT1, bright and early, says Johnny and Marino. Thank Br- you, Johnny, for the bright and early. update. 5 to 11. 5 to 11 now, I but think most whatever. people are probably up and about. I don't know if we got to the nub of the Zuckerberg idea, Ken, and whether or not you think it's a good one. Didn't ask you that. Um, it's not really up to me, Owen. <laughs> it's, it depends. Uh, it it shows, I mean, Trump getting elected showed that really anybody who is rich and extremely well-known can do this in America. You know, it's, I mean, it, it, people were talking about, well, you know, does he have the media support? Does he have the establishment support? Um, well, Zuckerberg is, Berg, rather, is clearly in a much stronger position than Trump. And if he was to run, I guess, I'm sure people would have lots and lots of problems with it. But maybe it would be better than, you know, another... Political f- dynasty, to use mm. that phrase. Is that all over with now, with Hillary last year? Well, depending on, on what Ivanka Trump is going to do, I mean, we, we don't know yet. There, there may yet be more to come from the Trump uh, dynasty, but it appears that the Obama dynasty is, is not going to have a step two for the time being. It's it's all well and good until you start running, and then the knives come out. Politics is tough, um, and it's hard on a family. Um, it's hard on the individual. Um, it's worthwhile. It's important. Um, but as I've said, I've said this many times before. I, I wouldn't ask my children to do this again, because when you run for high office, it's not just you. It's your whole family. It's my mom. It's my brother. My nephews and nieces. Their lives are impacted. That was uh, Michelle Obama there speaking over the weekend, saying she's not going to sort of become uh, a politician or run run for office. I mean, the Bushes did it, the Clintons did it, maybe the Trumps, but not the Obamas. And Michelle was at least as impressive as a lot of these other people that we talk about when over the last eight years or so. Mm. There was almost an assumption she, not that necessarily she would run, but if she did, she'd get a huge amount of popularity. A couple of texts in here, Louis Copeland here, listened to Ken Doherty this morning, was there that night in Sheffield watching Ken win. It was an amazing night. I introduced Ken to Alex Higgins, Alex Higgins, I should say, when Ken was a young guy. That's a hell of, a hell of an introduction to make. I ran in the Dublin Marathon in 1981. There were absolutely no obstacles in our way. Women were free to run, enter. It was only the second ever Dublin City Marathon. Thought nothing of it at the time. It's amazing how much things have changed. Catherine Switzer, unbeknownst to me, paved the way for all of that. That was the only marathon I ever ran, but I continued to run for years. Emers texted that one in to five one double five one. I think that's about all we've got time for for the time being. Huge thanks for all the lovely messages, calls and tweets that you've sent into the show over the last couple of hours. We're going to be back, as I mentioned, on Radio 1 in July and August for Second Captain Sunday on Sunday morning, uh, Sunday mornings, I should say. In the meantime, you can listen to us later today on our own online broadcast channels at Second Captains. We're going to be back in our own studios 
in about an hour or so, guys. You better get our skates on for the Second Captain's World Service. All the details on how to join that are on secondcaptains.com. Thanks so much for everything that the Ryan Tuberty team have done for us over the last few days getting ready for this show. We've had a really lovely welcome, so thanks very much for that. The main man will be back for tomorrow's show, possibly with holiday friends in tow. We don't know you. Needed to hear at the very start of the show to understand what I'm on about there. Roland Collins is up next from 11 to 1. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your bank holiday. The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1.